episode of our podcast We Buzz, produced by Animal Concepts. My name is Sabrina Brando. I'm the founder of Animal Concepts, and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in other goals, such as conservation, education, and research. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Yes Linning Harfeld, who is the Associate Professor in the Department of Culture and Learning and an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Social Sciences and the Humanities Center for Applied Philosophy at the University of Olbo in Denmark. Welcome, Jess. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yes, very much looking forward. And we always like to kick off the podcast with a short story of an early connection with an animal or in nature. So really looking forward to hearing your story as well. While I was studying, so when I was a, a student, um, uh, back at, even when my, I was doing my bachelor's, I was um, interested in, um, in ethics. So ethics was the philosophical topic that, that I was most interested in, also a bit of epistemology, especially things like theory of mind. Um, and, uh, and I wasn't interested in nature. I wasn't interested in animals at all. Uh, not not in my professional life or in my stu- study life and not in my uh, personal life. But um, at some point, I and, and this is going to si- sound like um, something that a lot of people have, have met. Somewhere along the way in my studies in philosophy, I come across Peter Singer. And I am at that point already uh, an ardent... Let's say I wouldn't say an adversary, but I'm, I think utilitarianism is wrong at that point. I still think it's somehow wrong, but back then I, I was young and very, very much uh, into a certain kind of ethical stance. And um, so I'm, I'm reading Peter Singer uh, as a utilitarian, you know, disagreeing with him on every page. But what I, what I kind of get into during uh, reading of, uh, during the reading of, um, of uh, animal liberation is the idea of applying a combination of uh, philosophy of mind. So the question, what what does it mean to have a mind and can we have access to other minds and stuff like that? And suddenly it's a much more interesting question than just with humans. I mean, with humans, it's still an interesting question, but, but suddenly we get these other beings, and some of which are fundamentally different than us in many of the biological senses. So an octopus will have parts of its neural system in its arms and stuff like that. And suddenly philosophical ideas about theory of mind become much more interesting. I, or at least I thought at that point, and I still think so. And um, when then combined with my passion for for doing uh, ethical um, ethical uh, studies in, in philosophy, that combination kind of set me on a road. But it wasn't it wasn't a given thing until I did my PhD. So I, uh, my master's dissertation, for example, has almost nothing to do with uh, animals. There's a bit of um, environmental uh, 
philosophy in my master's degree, but it wasn't until I got to do my PhD that, that it really dawned on me that this idea of studying animals as a philosopher uh, was both incredibly fun and very, very meaningful. So that's how I, I, I got my first steps uh, towards this uh, area. Thanks. Before we go you know, further into the podcast and ask questions around philosophy, perhaps can you talk to us a little bit, you know, when you say ethical stance or utilitarian, what, what is meant by that? So, so in, um, in traditional uh, philosophy, there are a number of different directions you can go when you do ethics. Um, and uh, perhaps the most famous uh, philosopher outside, um, outside of philosophy and, uh, and certainly within animal uh, studies outside of philosophy is Peter Singer. Uh, a current still uh, very much alive philosopher from Australia. And he is, as I mentioned before, a utilitarian. So that's a, a direction or a stance within uh, philosophical ethics. It has a certain uh, maxim, so it, 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 it or, or axiomatic stance. So it basically says that what we have to look at first and foremost is whether uh, a being can suffer and enjoy things and uh, to which degree we can increase the increase the enjoyment and lessen the suffering of uh, a, a, of everyone in the world including animals so it's very famously uh, starts out in the modern times uh, with um, a, uh, an 18th century philosopher called Jeremy Bentham, an English uh, philosopher, um, and followed by John Stuart Mill, uh, Sitchwick, others, uh, and today is uh, one of the mainstream uh, directions in, in, in philosophical ethics. However, it is also, it is uh, countered by uh, philosophers who take a more Kantian approach. Um, so they are, there's a number of philosophers. Tom Regan is the famous one uh, uh, within the first line of uh, 1970s, 1980s uh, animal ethicists. And Tom Regan was a Kantian philosopher who, instead of looking at welfare, it wasn't that he wasn't... Um, interested in welfare. He was very much interested in welfare, and as well was Kant. However, uh, they would, both Kant and Regan would disagree with the utilitarians that fundamental rights, for example, could be overruled by welfare concerns. So, so there would be a number of fundamental rights. So I, even though I could, let's say I could prove that my use of a number of lab animals could lead to uh, more enjoyment than the suffering that the animals uh, had, that might in a type of utilitarian calculus be okay, but for a rights philosopher or Kantian rights philosopher, it would not. It is also the same uh, area that people sometimes call it deontological ethics, but, but that is, uh, that is something that Kant certainly never called his ethics deontological. It's something that's been uh, a framing of it that's put on later. Um, I myself stand uh, somewhat apart from these major traditions, even though I 
include um, a number of issues from both of them. For example, I think that the utilitarians are, are to some extent right, uh, that there is a, an experiential factor of suffering that might be the, the lowest common denominator for whether you are ethically relevant or not. So um, I have outside my window as we speak a, a hedge there's a hedge, a thorny hedge, and I'm pretty sure that this thorny hedge, although it's um, although it's both uh, alive and currently thriving because it's springtime and stuff like that, that it doesn't have an experience of that thriving. It doesn't experience uh, and has and have an attitude towards whether it's good or not for it. So it doesn't matter ethically in the way that. Uh, animals or beings do that have that so i might agree with the utilitarians on that i have other things that i would agree with the rights theorists about but i usually come down on a more aristotelian inspired stance um, which is a sort of it's a different type of system if it is a system within animal ethics or within ethics at all uh, where where the question is not so much about um, what I ought to do, uh, because most Aristotelian think that it's almost impossible to answer all the time, you know, exactly what you should do. But what you should do should be an expression of certain characteristics. So, so the original ones from Aristotle would be something like. Uh, uh, f uh, being friendly, being generous, being c uh, courageous, something like that. Um, and I think there's something to be gotten from that stance, especially also because Aristotle developed an idea of welfare. Uh, it's called uh, eudaimonia, or the life that succeeds. And it has less an em emphasis on an accumulation of happiness uh, in 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 a quantitative sense, than a than a meaningful uh, a meaningful life to some extent, uh, which can seem weird to appropriate on animals, but uh, I think there's uh, a couple of uh, people out there doing it. Uh, for example, uh, Rosalind Hurst House and, and and others within modern animal ethics that are to some extent, uh, Aristotelian-inspired, yeah. Yes, and I think, you know, a lot of facilities that are really looking at, like, who are all these individuals in our care and how do we, you know, promote or support them having as much, you know, choices and control, being agents of their life as much as possible? What does a meaningful life look like for these animals an enjoyable life where they have affordances so yeah there's I think in the thoughts world uh, a lot going on in that space and and or at least you know some people are working on it including yourself and we're going to talk more about that and and I think a lot of practitioners are thinking about and trying to make changes in how animals are cared for uh, in that aspect as well I think actually um, there's an interesting aspect here that 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 although I've kind of you know set out there are like three different or actually there are many different ethical approaches. Uh, um, these are just three of the most popular ones. 
Now, what I think is most important is that <laughs> that you don't, you know, that people don't get the idea that they, you know, have to identify with one of these and then like do that. That would be a very uh, problematic thing for not only themselves but for everybody around them. But I think the idea of kind of even for people, and I, I teach a lot of people ethics that are not uh, philosophy students. So I will teach uh, animal welfare science people. I will teach uh, uh, lab assistants. I will te teach people in the human healthcare system. And um, and what I always do, you know, I, I, I tell them about these different approaches, but I uh, but I mainly emphasize that the way you should understand this, unless you want to be an ethics scholar. Is not to like find your niche. Oh, I am a utilitarian. I'm now gonna go do utilitarian stuff or something like that. No, 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 no. You you have to. What what is it that these uh, approaches are discussing? What what are what are the arguments? What are the uh, approaches? And then you know, kind of metal through. You know, like just uh, just be aware that that ethics can be so many things, and these are almost all of them. I think relevant to animals. Yes, absolutely. And I remember you and I have done different activities over the many years that we've known each other, whether it's like, you know, presentations, but also practical activities and a lot of frustration also often with regards to, but then what is the answer? You know, what should we do, right? And, uh, and you talking and very much around like, well, it depends, you know, of, this, of your stance or what you do and perhaps you can talk a little bit about why you know when people are looking for answers you know in what ways are you perhaps guiding them in making decisions yeah so so the first thing i always do is that uh, saying that okay so well actually i think there's a an ethical demand uh, that lies before you start thinking about you know what type of ethics you know like well, are, are we wanna do we wanna uh, maximize happiness do we want to respect certain rights or do we want something else even before that and I, and this is a quote from my one of my big heroes in the field uh, bernard e rollin um former professor distinguished professor at colorado state university he unfortunately died back in november um and he used to say something along the lines of that it is our moral duty first and foremost to understand animals, right? So, so that, that seems weird, like like uh, like that. Um, like, shouldn't our moral duties be about how we act towards them? You know, and he says, yeah, 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 yeah. That that comes later, but you our first moral demand. So 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 being as aware of what an animal is, getting to the depths of the knowledge of what animal lives are and can be and are potentially, that is the first moral demand. That is actually a moral demand that comes before any other moral demands that we simply need to understand that, them as, you know, as, as in-depth as possible, simply because any good ethics about what to do and even your psychological possibility of caring for animals is inside this concept of understanding. So, so, so there's a, that's actually one of the things that I 
always emphasized uh, about uh, about ethics that that there's a moral demand even before we get to all you know like how ought we act towards them and one of the reasons i think that um, virtue ethics has a certain appeal to me is that i think the it has a a a, a deeper notion of, of this uh, type of understanding or the morality of understanding embedded in it but that will become very technical but but i think that's one of the things you know we have a moral demand to understand animals absolutely it makes complete sense to even though we don't necessarily do this uh, all the time or very much i mean it depends really where we are interacting with animals and and how we're thinking about animals and what i guess we ought what we feel we ought to be doing to and to which extents but it makes complete sense right to first really understand other animals and individuals to then decide what what do we need to do yeah. right or what how and, we should that's be what, behaving and and one of the things that i've been working with from almost the you know like the first pages of my phd thesis that's written more than a decade ago um was a um, a a very i had i had back then and i still have a, a very skeptical um, approach to certain types of what I call narrow scientific views of animals, right? So, so back in the 1920s and 1930s, um, certain ways of thinking within the both philosophical but also the uh, the more uh, broader oriented uh, science community had um, a tendency to be what we call positivistic. So, so that would mean something in, along the lines of, well, true science, real science can only address matters that are directly observable, directly observable. So empirically, you know, um, what I can say about a lion is the things that, you know, it does. It's, it's, a, it's a very simplistic form of behaviorism. During my, uh, my studies and as well as my um, research career has been uh, certain tendencies within the uh, scientific, um, scientific community uh, or parts of the scientific community to have a very restrictive view of what we could actually say about animals and it of course goes back to the idea of uh, other minds that that in the 1920s and 30s and there was a there was a, a, a certain focus especially in in parts of the philosophy uh, world but also in, in in the science about what real science was uh, and that uh, real science or what we could really know was only things that could be directly observed. Uh, however, the thing about animal welfare or indeed human welfare uh, is that much of it, this experience of it is a um, intrinsically subjective phenomenon. That means that even though you and I have known each other for more than a decade and uh, we uh, can usually 
if we are together, have a certain idea about how the other person, from what we can see, what you're saying, what you're showing with your body language, what I know of your of your of your past, etc. I can discern what type of mood you're in, uh, whether you are making a joke or whether uh, something like that. So, but all of this experience inside of you, I only have indirect access to, and and of course, this is then again even a further issue uh, when it comes to animals um, and. Uh, Marion Dawkins, for example, uh, in one of her books, uh, sees this as a, uh, an explanatory gap, right, that we can't just jump. And I, am, I'm, I, I am have the tendency of saying, well, we have to jump it and we should jump it and we have jumped it before and it's not a problem. Um, we have, of course, to see all animal welfare um, understandings, uh, to use my word from before, as types of um, interpretations, right? So, so I'm interpreting uh, signals, and then I am, quote unquote, jumping to a conclusion about uh, how it is for you, or for the animal. And that is, of course, one of the things that that's certain types of scientists do not like, but and and I remember when I started writing my my PhD dissertation, I, I was very much up in arms against because I had found a couple of texts about uh, especially uh, certain types of uh, positivists, certain types of behaviorists, uh, just dismissing the whole notion of. Um, of an animal welfare science because it's not science when you can't actually say something about it directly. But then I uh, went to uh, the um, husbandry uh, faculty of, uh, of Aarhus uh, University where I was doing my PhD and uh, met the people there. Uh, one of my uh, advisors was uh, Birte Lindstrom Nielsen um, and, uh, and uh, a very uh, distinguished uh, ethologist. And uh, from her and, of course, from a number of other people there, I quickly learned that there was a, an entire science within uh, ethology of animal welfare scientists that, of course, uh, said that this is science and we have certain ways of doing this appropriately. Um, and now, so, so I, I ended up not being angry at animal welfare science, but being angry at um, certain narrow types of animal uh, or animal science yeah could you give some examples of like what then in what ways would we should we go about it to not be so narrow so maybe what is an example of very narrow and what is a more appropriate sort of approach so um, one of the most interesting things that I've been doing is because I'm I, I'm not an uh, I'm a, not a natural scientist I'm I'm a philosopher so my main uh, the the things that I study when other people go out into a barn or in a field or something and study animals I study um, uh, concepts so I will follow concepts in literature for example. And one of the things that, for example, I have been studying is uh, the development of, um, of emotional concepts. So uh, the historical development of, of emotional con concepts has been uh, very interesting because it shows how our thinking 
has been has I would call it progressed, but it certainly has changed. That it is not that many years ago that a great number of emotional concepts were seen as irrelevant or misappropriated when used for animals. So uh, one of the famous examples is uh, Francois Wemelsfelder idea of uh, boredom in animals, right? So, so I've met uh, contemporary um, animal scientists who don't like the concept of using or don't like uh, to use the concept boredom because you know it's not it's not uh, humans uh, and the humans get bored animals might have you know uh, lack of stimulation anxiety or something like that uh, or, and and I would uh, then when they say that I will usually say but what's anxiety uh, isn't that a, also a human concept and they'll be like, ah, oh, but then anxiety is a, is a type of stress. And I would go, well, what, stress is a, is a concept of suffering that we know from humans. And, and, but that seems to be the lowest common denominator is, is, is the concept of stress. But we have to remember there was also a time, for example, back at the early 20th century, when assigning scientifically stress to animals uh, was, uh, was problematic. And today we've seen a development that people will, uh, within the animal science community, apply um, meaningful, what they think are meaningful concepts of not only boredom, but happiness and disgust and uh, quite a number of other things, friendship, all these kind of emotions. So, so what I've seen is that there, there's an there's been an ability in the sci animal welfare science community to start using a broader conceptual framework and the great upside to that both also so there's an ethical one which is that there are more things about the animals that we understand and that's a more um, imperative but also there's we, we are more precise in we can be more precise in how to uh, promote welfare because we have this much broader palette of uh, uh, emotional concepts that we can use, and that's been a that's been a. Um, I usually say that that all these concepts, uh, you know, first you don't use a concept like boredom or or happiness with animals, then you start using it in quotation marks because it's you know boredom quotation mark, but not really boredom because only humans are bored, uh, and then at some point it will become a standard issue uh, operator as a concept of emotions in animals, and that is one of the things that uh, I've been studying. That that kind of flow and uh, one of the things that I've been pushing myself in my research is is that there are relevant uh, terminology in uh, our languages that uh, we can use to describe. Uh, certain emotional characteristics that we um, that we interpret that the animals uh, have from a number of other uh, different sources, including, of course, very direct observational studies. Uh, yeah. Yes, and it's very interesting and also very important to note that a lot of the ways that we can talk about animals or write about animals is also very much dictated by for example, the ability to publish in certain in certain journals or to write uh, certain content, right? So it might not be so in scientific articles. We often also see 
things like yeah boredom like states or yeah, yeah. like you talked about right it's um, exactly. and 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 it's super interesting to see that and also where is our comfortability right we have for a long time because of the five freedoms and the history of animal welfare science we are i think a lot more comfortable with anxiety or fear and those sorts of words and um and like you say the the quotation marks for happiness and and other words and and seeing those changes and would you say like we when we talk about you know having to prove right the burden of proof yeah. instead of it being on like well you know and you and it goes back to understanding animals right and what should we be doing so then we assume that they can be bored or you know that they can feel joy and whatever you know pig joy and and all those things that you also talk about what does that look like so the burden of proof needs to be like that they do not have it or that they you know can not uh, do it's certain things it's actually a very interesting in philosophy there's a interesting discussion about you know where the burden of proof uh, meaningfully is uh, that's, that's a discussion in itself. So I usually, uh, you know, people who are very much, well, you have to prove that an animal has, and I'm like, usually if you sit, like, if you're on the top floor of a high rise and you sit uh, a couple of meters away from the window and I give you a very heavy object and tell you to throw it out the window, what do you do? Well, you say, no. Why do you do it? Because there might be some people down there, right? And and I'm like, well, uh, I, I think that that's that that should be our approach to this. So 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 for example, when we um, when we get another ingenious idea about how to you know maybe use animals, and and our approach should not be that someone has to come and prove to us that this is bad. Uh, it has to be the other way around. Um, and I think uh, um, that especially because we have seen um, the area that mainstream science has increasingly attributed consciousness, uh, uh, pay, ability for pain and pleasure to animals. So, so, so. So sometimes in ethics, we talk about an expanding circle, right? So we talk about, well, we used to only think ethics was about, you know, my own little group. Then we thought of, you know, it's, it's, it's of all white people. Well, why? Okay, the, uh, the people with other colors are also re ethically relevant. And now we're thinking maybe, maybe some types of animals are ethical, ethically relevant. So that's, that's, that's talking about an expanding circle in ethics. I also think that we have a different type of expanding circle that um, that that science, you know, without having an ethical agenda is simply identifying more and more animals that have, um, or it certainly looks as if it's a meaningful interpretation that they have uh, the ability to experience pain and pleasure or have cognitive abilities far beyond what uh, we were inside science thinking uh, just uh, 10, 20 years ago. So I think there's actually also, you, you could document an expanding circle there. For example, take a look at um, the animals on the lists. So, so we have um, uh, certain lists of animals that you are allowed to do 
uh, invasive, um, invasive experiments on and uh, how to treat them. And, and that list has included more and more animals, right? So <laughs> we've never taken animals off the list. You know, we, we, we've never thought, you know, oh yeah, that, that type of animals is certainly uh, an animal that experienced pain and pleasure and has consciousness. And then after a while gone, oh, our new evidence suggests it has no consciousness, no ability to experience, and then taking the off list. It seems to only go the other way. And that's just, just a, you know, a neutral, uh, so to speak. It's not an ethical or normative in any way. It's just uh, science discovering more and more about animals. I, I think one of, uh, I also know that you uh, like him, Franz de Waal, uh, wrote uh, a book a couple of years ago, and I am not entirely sure of the title, but I think it was called something to the extent of, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? And I think that's actually a very, very good question. And I think the answer is no. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously from that, uh, and for example, your example of not, you know, taking animals off the list is more and more and more, uh, going back to your argument about understanding animals, then perhaps from that, of course, flows that some animals, and we see this in, for example, great apes and other animals, we should not do certain things with them. And I think that's obviously one end of the spectrum. And then the other end is, you know, not just the, the diminishing, right, the mitigating of, of bad experiences, and but really also looking at what does a, a meaningful life or like you call also, you talk about and write about animal flourishing. What does that yeah. look like? Yeah, for the, because so one of my main points in, in, in my work has been trying to establish different types of uh, welfare uh, concepts that are meaningful uh, or that, are, you know, that, that I could argue at least was certain, had meaning. And, and one of them I call uh, flourishing, uh, which is, of course, a... Um, an Aristotelian inspired way of thinking. So flourishing, uh, and it doesn't work in all languages, but in English it does, uh, because it has the connotation of something that has a potential. Uh, and that potential then has a, um, there, there, are the, there are circumstances in which that potential can bloom or flourish, right? So, so that, that it can, uh, develop in a positive way. Um, and this does not equate uh, maximum happiness necessarily, uh, but, uh, but there are certain frameworks for how this uh, could be done. My, as, I, as I said before, um, I'm greatly inspired by Bernard E. Rollin, and he had this idea, he talks about a similar thing. He doesn't talk about uh, exactly the sort of flourishing I am, but he has a concept what, that he uh, appropriates from Aristotle that he calls telos. So originally with uh, Aristotle, telos, which means something to the extent of goal or end goal, is, is something that everything has. So, so in, in, in the cosmological thinking of Aristotle, everything has a purpose, all right? Um, and this is one of the reasons that Aristotle wasn't a terrible big friend of animals uh, when we look back at it, because he thought animals had a purpose, and that purpose was to be there for humans. Uh, so, so they were kind of, uh, you know, like, you know, the plant life was there for the animals, and the animals were there for us. Um, but um, Bernard E. Rollin, back uh, in the 80s, appropriates this concept of telos to talk about 
uh, how all animals have something that they kind of, you know, that there's a direction that they will involve it. And this is not a, a, a strong naturalism. So there, there's, there's types of ethical theory or type of even ethological theories that go towards uh, talking about, you know, the animals has to have so an, as natural a life as possible, right? I'm not even sure what that means, but that's certainly not what the Telus view is. The Telus view, uh, in the Telus view, you could have animals in, in uh, you could have zebras in Denmark, where they naturally, uh, in some sense at least, do not belong, but they could have extremely flourishing lives if given the right conditions. Um, and I think this is, especially for people who works in zoos, would be a good approach that instead of thinking in, in mere uh, welfare happiness, uh, thinking in a more, uh, in, a, in a, some sense, holistic way about animal welfare, that, that a, animal welfare can be a great many things uh, within a certain frame that is the uh, telos of the animal. Yes, it also reminds me of this book by um, Vivian Despret. Like, what would animals say if we asked the right question? Mm. And uh, and I thought that was, I really enjoyed that book a lot. And uh, I want to reread it again. But I think it has to do with, like, not just are we smart enough, but there's many, many things we didn't know that existed. Like, for example, microplastic. Um, until we had the right tools to see it, right? Or to, to hear. Um, and we didn't know that, that elephants, you know, actually have these, these, these sounds that we cannot hear and so on and so on. So what are the, the right questions to ask? You know, do we even know what these are? And I think when it comes to, you know, thinking about what does it mean to have purpose? And I think if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's uh, when we're talking about in pursuit of happiness, it's, uh, it, it is really about purpose, not necessarily about, you know, so what is meaningful, those things. So what does it mean for another animal? Who are they? And, and what does it mean? What is a meaningful life to them, right? Is that how uh, we could talk about it? Think yeah, about I think it? it's a very good uh, way of describing it. Um, and that, of course, you know, returns to the first moral imperative to understand so 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 and 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 my idea about understanding or the epistemology of uh, animal welfare science is that we need more ways of asking we simply need more so so we should be much more interested in new ways of asking however uh, all types of science and especially types of natural science are, are um intrinsically very conservative often because you know you have to compare studies with each other right so so if if someone has done a study using a certain method then you want to show something else but to compare it with the other study you have to use the same methods um and i think that's that's that should be one of the uh, new things within animal welfare science in in a much bigger way than it is right now should be well developing methods for asking. So my former advisor, uh, Birte Lindström Nielsen, wrote a fabulous book um, just, uh, I think, two years ago, something like that, 
and and it's and she's a you know hardcore uh, natural science ethologist and and it's just a book about how to ask it's called uh, asking animals you know and and it's it's also sometimes you know i think also the the title has something to do with 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 many people's view that oh, but we can't ask animals you know that that's a, a, a typical thing to say that you know oh yeah that's very good but we can't ask animals and she insists very rightly i think that we can and and and, and that a big part of the moral demand of understanding animals must be you know a a a, a similar moral demand to develop methods of asking uh, in appropriate ways for appropriate things and in appropriate scientific ways of course so i think asking animals might be uh, not not ju just the book by Bierde, but but in general be one of the most important things that we can be looking into uh when it comes to animal welfare not finding out you know uh you know uh, yeah, yeah you should certainly find more ways that you can use enrichment and stuff but you know do that and then use some time to find good methods for asking further questions. Yes, absolutely. And I think two things spring out to me, like one is about credibility, right? So you, you talk about her and her work and being a hardcore, you know, natural scientist. And so, and so what is accepted by others, right? In our field, um, whether it's legitimate, what we're doing and how we're doing things. And that is, I think, like you talked about the conservation in the sense of conservative stances. And so I think, you know, who is the person that can propose like, you know, different ways or why we should be doing certain things. And that, that's one thing. And then of course, also you talk about asking and, and moving away from the verbal animal that we are uh, in our, our language stance, but also what does, ask, what does asking mean for that particular, you know, in what ways can we be asking questions? And so, you know, perhaps you have some examples of what that could be like? Uh, not so not, not just... directly, no. Okay, no, no worries, I, yeah. No. We can just skip that part. Yeah. yeah. But what so, I would like, uh, I have... Oh yeah, go ahead. Another, um, so so there, there is a, I think I, I'd like to address, um, you've had uh, two comments about this, and I think it's very interesting that um, that because we are in such a interdisciplinary field. Uh, so I'm sitting uh, here as a philosopher, uh, and uh, in many, many contexts, I talk to biologists uh, of different kinds. Uh, but I also have uh, colleagues who are anthropologists who do human, human animal studies. And, and, and to a great degree, there are different ideas of what good science or good knowledge or good epistemology is uh, within these genres. And within, within these genres, there are different uh, ideas about it. So, so whenever I say epistemology, is uh, it, it means the, the the learning about knowledge. So so an epistemological question is typically something about how can we know something about knowing. So so in animal welfare science, this is actually we can say that the question about whether and what characteristics uh, animal happiness has 
that's an epistemological question. You know, it's it's a question about how can I know that? You know, I, you know, I have uh, seems like I have no a, a very distinct knowledge about a something that I can physically see moving in time and space, but the experience of happiness is not something that I can see distinctly moving in time and space. Um, so, so how do I get access to that? So, so the whole question about how to do that is actually an epistemological question. It's really just a fancy uh, philosophy word, that, and, and everybody does this within science, to, to even whether or not they know the word or not. So that's what I mean when I, I say that. Um, in German, they would probably call it Erkenntnis theory or something, a theory of, of, uh, of, of knowledge, something like that. Yeah, and it's also, at least for me, the word seems similar in, to Dutch, which is about being able to recognize. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. Like, what are those? Uh, yeah. yeah. So one of the, we have to approach this interdisciplinarity. So, so on a personal level, I switch languages, for example. So if I'm at a conference with theoretical anthropologists and philosophers talking about nature, I can use a, a given vocabulary that is accepted there, right? And it can be very theoretical, very speculative, without anyone raising an eyebrow. Uh, I can't do that if I'm in a room full of uh, either farmers or, or at least uh, if there are enough of a certain type of biologists, uh, or vet or especially for me, it's been the experience of uh, veterinary science. Uh, veterinarians can be uh, fairly um, positivistic in their approach. Uh, so, so, so I will have to to engage people simply uh, to uh, switch types of language, not saying, you know, things that I don't mean or anything like that. But we have to be aware that there are different languages uh, to uh, an extent. It's the same problem that we have with asking animals. Uh, it, <laughs> maybe I should write a book called Asking Biologists, because, you know, you have to <laughs> have certain methods to talk to people. I remember first time I was a young man and came into my advisor's office uh, at uh, the husbandry department. And, and I had this question I've been struggling with all day uh, in the literature. And, and I look into her office and like, do you have a minute? And she says, yeah, yeah, sure, come in. And I say, well, I have this question that I've been struggling with all day. So can a cow hope for something? And she just looks at me as like, what? And, and, and it's obviously a wrong question. I mean, but she's very, she was very open-minded and we had a good discussion about cow hope, but, but nobody has at any biology conference ever asked her, uh, do cows hope, right? So um, it's not necessarily a wrong question. But no, 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 no. Yeah, I it's think it's a great question. Not, but but, yeah, but yeah. it could be, have been phrased much better and still be my question. Uh, if, and especially if I had met someone who's, who would be, less inclined to accept my idea of using certain concepts in certain uh, in certain areas so 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 i don't think we should certainly uh, think of this as wrong or right questions but merely that 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 we can put them in different languages now 
asking biologists has become fairly easy for me because I've been practicing for more than a decade. Um, but I also think we should uh, remember that when we, and I think it goes for every single uh, particular group. So, so I have the uh, talking to uh, zoo people, for example, uh, and there's a certain kind of uh, thinking that is ingrained in mo most, uh, like a, a number of, and I won't call it uh, dogmatic thinking, but it's certainly something that uh, people, every person, myself included, of course, who work in certain frameworks, we get to a certain type of thinking. And because uh, of that, we sometimes have to kind of switch uh, loops, so to speak, to, to kind of get into uh, speaking with others in a meaningful way ac across disciplines. And we have to be open for that. So, so if, if, if philosophers kind of just roll their eyes because nobody gets our ideas of ontology uh, or, or if, uh, or if uh, biologists, like uh, we don't even want to talk with these guys because they use uh, uh, the concept of happiness uh, for bees or, or something like that. Um, I think we should uh, have an openness towards uh, different types of um, of scientific language, um, and I think that would help uh, animal welfare science a great deal if we were a little bit more open uh, uh, towards each other's languages of science. Yes, absolutely, and there's so much to learn, right? It's not just like having to maybe learn about different species or about different sorts of methods, but now it's also different sorts of languages. Uh, whether it's in reading or in like sometimes when I see scientific articles, you know, titles and descriptions, it's even like it seems so abstract, right? It's like, are we talking about sentient animals here? And uh, and there's just so much there, right? And and of course, also your point of how we learn over time to communicate, to interact with people and to also practice this sort of open stance and willingness to continue talking even especially if we disagree or if we don't understand each other so yeah it's almost like all these different foreign languages it uh, is, that are it, there. It is it's basically learning to speak with biologists was for me back when i was a student was was basically learning a different language so i was reading suddenly i was reading many many uh biology papers uh, scientific bi biology papers because there was a lot of ethology that was, that was relevant for my PhD dissertation. I had to talk with all these people doing lunch breaks, right? And, uh, and, and, and we would talk shop. And I think one of the proudest moments uh, of my uh, PhD career was uh, in a discussion with my advisor. And at some point, she uses a, a, a biological concept that I'm unfamiliar with. And I'm like, oh, Beata, well, uh, sorry, I, did, I didn't get that last part. What, what do you mean with X or Y or whatever it was? And she looks at me and she's like, oh, just for a minute, I forgot you were not a biologist. Uh, and I was very happy about that. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's yeah. still my second language, right? So biology is still my second language. Uh, I, I try to gain more languages as, as, as we go along. And I think some of the most impressive uh, natural scientists I've met in my life are natural scientists who have, who have taught themselves uh, the language of either philosophy or anthropology, you know, that, that have said, you know, because if you're a natural scientist of a certain sort, learning the concept, the, the, you know, the, the, the conceptual foundations of anthropology or sociology or 
philosophy is basically like being an English speaker and then having to learn Inuktitut uh, or, or some other Inuit language, right? It's it's very very far away from what you're doing. So so it's it's uh, yeah I think uh, uh, that that's one of the things I've had the most um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, what I've mostly admired with some natural scientists have been the ones who've taken the time to kind of learn the languages outside their sphere. Yes, and that's, of course, also true for people like you in a different discipline, uh, learning biological uh, language or, you know, other sorts of languages. And I think that's true. And it also makes it because everything is ultimately interconnected, right? So we're not like... Um, this little particle or this little section or cube, but rather actually it's the different knowledges, different you know, approaches that together are going to contribute to understanding other animals better, right? So there's a real need for that. And I actually love these, these questions like, you know, can, can cows you know, have hope or something? Also because especially when we get into our careers or our disciplines for a long time, we also sometimes forget, I think, in a way, like what what is what is this about, right? We are we are talking about we are concerned about other animals or about you know the well-being of plants, it could be, or but these sort of super simplistic questions. I think um, it's just like when you have people that are not maybe from the field or very new that also you know remind us again why why we are doing this and why this is important at least that's that's one of the impressions always for me like oh yeah wait a second and i think one of the ways that we can approach that you know why it's important and why it's not important to keep the boundaries of our disciplines is actually looking back in time so i i started out talking about aristotle right so, so that's two, two and a half, no, two thousand years ago. That's Aristotle was born in three eighty four, I think, uh, uh, BC, and um, and 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 had a certain view of animals. So, so animal thinking was already back then. But of course, Aristotle is not just one of the founding fathers of of, of philosophy, and perhaps the, the founding father of ethics. He's also one of the founding fathers of biology. He did uh, many, many uh, observations of uh, animals and was adamant towards his students that if who were a little, you know, why are, why am I sit sitting here dissecting a frog when I can discuss epistemology? Uh, and he was like, this is important. So, so I think, and that goes all the way up through history. So, so people like. Uh, like uh, Darwin was, a, uh, and that's, you know, 2000 years later is, is, is in many respects doing what we today would call types of, uh, of, uh, of philosophy. Um, and uh, before Darwin in the 1700s, uh, we had uh, Jeremy Bentham being a philosopher, but also a, a very much a political scientist. Uh, and, and many of these people who work in that field uh, did so without thinking of themselves. Um, we we just had the, an anniversary for the uh, invention or the discovery of electromagnetism, uh, which was in great part because of a Danish scientist called Ørsted, 
but beside being, you know, the father of electromagnetism, he was also a philosopher. So, so I think uh, I think that distinguishing be, between uh, or, or making barriers between disciplines is one of the things that that is not a good thing for animal welfare science. You know, we have to break down uh, disciplinary boundaries to do even better animal or welfare science. Um, Absolutely. I, yeah. yeah. And I remember, I remember uh, there, there was a Danish uh, philosopher back, uh, I think it's, uh, the book is written in 1748, uh, a Danish philosopher called uh, Frederick Christian Eilsko. And, um, and he writes this book uh, in English. It, the translation would be um, philosoph philosophical letters over several useful and important things. I, I love that title. And um, and at some point he's writing about animals. And this is 1748, and he's writing about happy pigs and uh, and sad pigs. And in it he has musical notations, you know, like uh, like on on, on, on a, that you would have on a music, you know, if you were gonna play a, a piece on the piano, you have a, a musical sheets, right? And he has a musical notation in his book about how pigs sound when they're happy and sad. And I think, I mean, and, and, and just the day after someone sends me an article about people, a brand new article about people having just done a major research project about uh, on pig sounds, about how to, you know, look at welfare through the sounds that pig makes. And I mean, it's, this is 300 years apart. And, 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 and I think we should think of it as that, like, like that it's, it's all connected. All the ways that we're thinking about animals are connected and can contribute to each other. And, and, and it doesn't just go, you know, listen, all the biologists should really be inspired by philosophy. It certainly goes the other way. You know, I have no, one of the things that annoys me the most are philosophers discussing uh, biological points that they clearly don't understand or, or, or that's wrong that they have made no effort to understand right so so there's a lot of bio biology i still don't understand uh, and and where you know i can make false assumptions on something and and i'm totally ready to uh, include new knowledge from that but i also uh, think that uh, it goes uh, both ways yes absolutely we have to make as much effort as we can, of course, we are all, you know, we can only do so much, everybody, but uh, when we are thinking about, you know, trying to understand and make changes, we need to be multidisciplinary, for sure, I absolutely agree. And so I was wondering also, you earlier talked about, you know, rights of animals and, uh, and of course, uh, well-being of animals and the interest of well-being in rights. And one of the research papers that you have written are about rights, solidarity, and the animal welfare state. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how you know what oh, what was the argument definitely. there? That, that, that is part of a uh, of a new um, a new development within uh, animal ethics. So so animal ethics in its modern sense that we you know know it today starts out in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Uh, if uh, if anyone wants to read about it, uh, there's a number of, of great books. I think a book called uh, The Oxford Group, uh, which is, uh, details a number of uh, different people in the you know uh, in the United Kingdom, 
uh, starting out um, animal rights thinking or animal ethics thinking. However, um, there's also uh, connected to that uh, something else uh, that happens. So, so, so we we will we will see not only a development of animal ethics, but also. Um, but it wasn't until actually, perhaps, um, yeah, about 10, 15 years ago, that uh, we saw what we in animal ethics call the political turn. So, so we've been in animal ethics writing for um, 30, 40 years about how, you know, how we should uh, have ethical uh, consideration of animals, etc. Um, and very few had addressed the idea of well if, if maybe it's more than ethics maybe we should also look at political philosophy and okay so the difference between ethics and political philosophy is not a you know you don't have a strict barrier between the two but in in a very simple sense you can say that ethics is how i as an individual ought to treat other individuals right um whereas political philosophy is how we ought have how we should make our society how we should create society and keep society how society should work in order for, for it to be a good society um, and there of course uh, overlaps between the two in a great extent but not a lot of people have been looking at this idea that well if 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 animals have rights, either because of utilitarian reasons, Kantian reasons, virtue ethics reasons, then these rights might also be some type of political rights. So how, how would a state, a society look like if we took animals into account as uh, not only moral subjects, but as political subjects? And uh, I've written a, a short paper on that uh, some years ago. And, and one of my arguments is, and this is, of course, what we would call some type of ideal theory. So we're not going to have uh, animal societies or animal equality societies anytime soon. So in, in Denmark, where I live, we have a byproduct of the animal uh, or of the uh, pig uh, production industry of uh, 25,000 dead piglets every day it's as a byproduct you cannot have that and then have a political system that includes animals as citizens right so 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 we're very very far away from this but but philosophers are also we are we could call this a type of pure philosophy we're actually interesting in interested in where would certain arguments take us if if we if we actually did this even though uh, in practical sense, we are very far away from that. Um, and I wrote this piece because um, I thought of the Danish welfare system as, uh, or the Danish welfare society, or the, you could call it the Nordic welfare systems, because it's the similar systems that are at play in both um, Norway and Sweden, for example, or Iceland. And there are certain um, ideas within that that uh, that I think would be good uh, good aspects of a an animal welfare state, <laughs> so to speak, and um, and one of them is solidarity, and I think it's solidarity because it's it's at the core 
of, uh, of, of our thinking of political philosophy. Um, and solidarity has this idea that um, one should uh, not only benefit because you can uh, contribute, right? You might not be able to contribute very much, but you are still, uh, you're still one who should benefit, right? And this, of course, uh, is something that in, uh, in a typical uh, human-oriented political system would be about children or, or, the, um, or the sick or the old or the very poor or something that, that to some extent have lost the ability or do not have the ability and never had the ability perhaps to contribute to society in, in, in a very uh, uh, concrete way but are still within this idea of solidarity uh, members of society that are to be uh, considered and, and have uh, uh, the focus of the welfare state. They are not to be left alone. And I think this, this, could, uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the political systems or political theories that could include animals to a good extent, to, a, to an extent, because animals would, in a concrete society, not be able to contribute uh, in, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, in the ways that we normally think someone should contribute in a society. On the other hand, I open up the possibility, and this is a kind of, um, uh, this is one of the places where I disagree with, an, or a number of my colleagues disagree with me, uh, because I open up the possibility of, uh, of having animals work in societies, because I say that solidarity is contributing what you can. And some animals can work. Of course, there has to be a limit to this type of work, but we could uh, imagine some animals working. I, I, I don't remember uh, making any like uh, concrete uh, descriptions of that, but we could certainly, it could be types of, uh, of uh, even companion animal work or something like to that extent. But, but we could have animals do different tasks that are not detrimental to their welfare and are not uh, an, uh, a, a, a crushing of their rights or something like that. So that, that's what I worked on that article. And I'm very happy you asked about it because I'm currently working on, uh, on a, a new article that is actually taking my ideas from the original Sol Solidarity article and, and reworking that um, and, and trying to, uh, to see if I can do some more with that. And it's, 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 a, it's some work that a number of people are looking at currently. I know one of the big heroes of the political turn uh, was uh, Will Kimlicka, who together with Sue Donaldson wrote uh, this wonderful book called Suopolis. Um, many years ago, 10 years ago at least. Um, and, um, and he is also currently interested in this idea of solidarity. So it's, it's one of the things that, that is pushing our thinking about animals. It is, uh, to a great extent, ideal theory because we're simply not living in societies where enough people think about animals in a way that can meaningfully place them as citizens. Yes, and I think, you know, these, this thinking and, and or being thought leaders or being, you know, envisioning what it could be like, right, is extremely important. And whether it is going to be animals working or contributing or, you know, animals as beings of their own lives, you know, independent also from 
humans. You know, they don't necessarily need to contribute or or look at what is the value to people, right? And understanding this aspect that animals can just be who they are for who they are and wherever they are and uh, and necessarily like yeah sorry yeah and i also think it's one of those things that we often see in Mm. in science right it's we are using it to get a better understanding of say evolution or so on and so on and i think those or we do these comparisons between other animals and the Mm. human animal and, and I think that is very valuable and very interesting and important. And at the same time, I also, you know, it's, it's so important to, you know, remember, uh, hold space for the fact that other animals, you know, don't need to be doing stuff or having value to us or, uh, and, and those are some of the things that I hold dear. And, and I think that's also a difference when we're talking about, you know, um, what do we envision? So think of the things that you talk about are what you may hope for, right? Well, how we hope to evolve to think about other animals versus what is the situation for animals now? And, and being realistic, of course, what is it that we need to do for animals in different systems? But what could it be like? So, and this is why I, I really like, you know, this paper and following your work and interacting with you, because it is important to, you know, you, you, you work on what is it that we could be doing now versus what could it perhaps be like? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think both are good. So so I, I, I'm certainly not, I, I like working in ideal theory because I can, in, 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 I can be less restricted by the sad realities. <laughs> um, but uh, but I, I certainly also, for example, write uh, on things about, you know, within the current way that we, we are, you know, we are the way that we are humans towards animals right now. What what can we argue uh, here? Uh, so so I I, I think uh, I have no preference between what I could call ideal or non-ideal theory, but but I work in both fields uh, equally. But uh, the joy comes from different things. In one context, about it is about you know thinking, you know, as far ahead as I can, you know. Uh, I, 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 there was a radio program I became semi-famous for in Denmark, where I said that you know in 300 years people will think about our treatment of animals that in the way that we treat in the way that we think about uh, people's treatment of black people uh, in, in during slavery, uh, and uh, I'm not sure that this is random stuff saying that on the radio, but but I do think that that the only way to get to that point is people you know, exploring ideas, you know, uh, that's what I see myself doing. I explore ideas and possibilities of ideas within uh, the animal uh, welfare studies region. Yes, and it's key to, you know, what you talked about at the very beginning of Mm. us understanding other animals, right? Because in our understanding, of course, it could be much about the human-animal interaction and relationship, but it also is about animals don't necessarily, you know, need to be in contact with us or want to be in contact with us and, and whatever else that might be happening, right? Because, of course, there's many effects on animals and wild places that that are happening without a, a direct contact, but indirect through pollution and all those other things. I mean, you and I could have a whole podcast, yeah. you know, on on environmental ethics and 
and all the, and some of the other topics that you mentioned. So, but it is really important to to think about what what could that be like and what should we you know be thinking about and going outside of this sort of narrow or conservative view because uh, that may be easier for testing or for answering certain questions. So yeah, I think it's it's really critical. So you've talked quite a bit about, you know, boredom and fear and anxiety and joy and other aspects and animals being happy. You actually have a paper that is about actually asking the question, what, what is happiness in animals? So perhaps we can hear a short, you know, story around what, what that uh, paper was about. Yeah. So starting with that paper and then also contributing to the work I'm doing now, I'm uh, so I, in that paper, uh, together with a number of colleagues, um, uh, we, uh, we insist on the fact that happiness is a, um, is a mental event, so to speak, right? So, so there, there's, a, there's an experience of it. Uh, in, in philosophy, we might call this qualia. So there is a way for it to be for you or for the animal. Uh, there is a way for it to be. Uh, so, so, so we, we we insist on this, and of course, this is um, also in the current work I'm doing uh, is um, is is because we see in in certain types of welfare studies that, and this comes back to uh, uh, some of uh, Fraser's work, for example, but also others. That, that, uh, that they identify like three different uh, welfare, um, welfare schemes of welfare understandings, which is one that is uh, health-based, one, um, uh, one that is natural, and then you have this experience part. And, and I think um, what I would, especially if I would write the paper today or write a new paper on this, but also coming out of that paper is that, well, um, naturalness, for example, or health, for example, and neither of those are in themselves appropriate to look at uh, or to define as uh, happiness. You know, you don't, you know, if, if you say this is truly natural or this is truly healthy, then you still haven't come close to, to, to happiness. Um, so, so that's the first part, you know, that, that naturalness certainly can play a part, health certainly usually does play a part in it, but it is the experience, the personal subjective experience of this. And of course, it then also goes on to saying that this can be something that can expressed in a very positive way. So the big problem with the Bramble report originally is, and it's been said a thousand times, is that it's called, it's all about freedom from, right? Um, and it's because the Bramble report is an old piece of legislation, or it was a policy suggestion, actually, that wasn't, it wasn't put into legislation until way later. So it was a policy suggestion. But it, it was a policy suggestion that came out of a, of a, a 19th century, early 20th century thinking about animal welfare that was actually looking mainly at what we today would call animal cruelty, right? So it was about not being cruel to animals, 
about not being overly cruel to animals, about not overworking animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it was about uh, avoiding negatives, right? Uh, and that's you know so so um, so all the early protection societies, animal uh, the animal the society, Royal Society for the Protection of Animals. Those were, and in Denmark, a similar time, uh, animal protection, there was a lot of these societies in, in Europe uh, coming uh, from the mid 1800s uh, until uh, early 20th century. And, and they all had this idea of, you know, um, uh, battling cruelty. So uh, one of the things that, that, that we looked at in the paper and that I'm working on uh, now and that has been, you know, the, the influx for many years now is thinking about uh, increased, so, so really thinking about happiness like we think about it with you and me as humans, like, right? uh, so, so we don't think of happiness or welfare in, in terms of, um, you know, nobody has been cruel to me today, that's a very good day, right? Uh, that that should that <laughs> nobody should be cruel to anyone, and then we kind of go well. If nobody's cruel to anyone, how do we become happy? You know, then there's a further there's developing of uh, of of uh, a number of things that can give you uh, a happy life, and that is ju not just some sort of non-cruel uh, baseline. So so that's that's where I'm moving to, to today is is basically looking at. A positive happiness uh, seems weird to have this concept, but it exists, positive happiness. But it's because happiness has sometimes been used as a, you know, uh, freedom from hunger, freedom from uh, uh, disease, etc. And then you're happy. Uh, and this seems to be a wrong use of the concept. Yeah. Yes, I think this is really important also because we've seen such an evolution in different ways of looking and assessing animals, right? And not just like the removal of those bad things or the provisions of things are going to make that animals are going to have a good life, right? Why people are moving to the five domains model and other sorts of contexts uh, using QBA to understand the emotional expressions of animals. So what does it mean? What does it look like? And especially also, of course, for the animals, what does it feel like, you know, to have like what you talked about, uh, a meaningful life, a, a good life, right, for animals. And so, yeah, it's, it's really exciting work. And I look forward to, I know you're working also on, um, on a book, and perhaps that's a story to tell or not. So I'm not going to actually say more about that. Well, I'm going to come back on the, on, on the program and tell way more about that. Uh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, later. and I think... Yeah, you and I have, you know, done some work on consumer behavior in the sense of, you know, eating animals at the zoo. So what does it mean for a zoo to serve animals in restaurants? There's so many other topics. We're going to, you know, come back in another podcast indeed to talk about it. And in conclusion of this podcast, could you share with us a, a memorable story? Uh, it could be anything that's close to your heart. Um, that would be great. I'm actually going to use this opportunity to make a, a little bit of an ad for a book I just read. And I hope that's okay, because that has been the most memorable uh, experience in the, the animal welfare studies that I've been doing for the past few months. Uh, I'm going I'm to have another one as well, but I just want to... Uh, uh, make everyone um, aware of uh, a, a book by Klaas Kekel. I'm not in sure, entirely sure if I, I, I 
pronounced that right, called Bearing Witness, Ruth Harrison and British Farm Animal Welfare, 1920-2000. And it's a free book. You can download it for free. And it's, it's a wonderful run-through uh, using Ruth Harrison, of course, uh, the author of Animal Machines, as uh, a nexus. But it has so much about, you know, how did we discuss welfare the animal welfare for the last hundred years and it's a wonderful book if you want to learn more about why you are thinking what you are thinking wonderful um, we'll make sure there's going to be a link obviously to you to your profile so that people can contact you or look at your publications and also uh, this book and some other resources thanks yeah. for sharing that yeah and the other one is uh, that i had the the great privilege back in uh, in the fall of um of uh, being uh, a guest at uh, the University's Federation for Animal Welfare, UFAW sometimes called, uh, um, and uh, having a look at their archives. And during this work, um, uh, I was trying to find out where the concept, the modern concept of animal welfare actually starts. Um, I haven't really nailed it yet, but it's around then and around there. And um, I'm looking at uh, all these uh, mentions and, uh, and uh, one of the very interesting things. So if, if, if anyone is uh, interested in, uh, the, in Julian Huxley, uh, who's, who was Aldous Huxley's brother and uh, very famously coined the term uh, human enhancement, which is where I knew him from. And he had a great, uh, a great thing. Oh, he had a lot to to contribute to the um, animal welfare science debate in the early, the early 20th century. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that we should do and that I'm experiencing more and more is that in order to think differently, we, we have to look into the past to find out why we are thinking as we are thinking right now. Yes. I absolutely agree. It's really, really important to understand. It's like when we, you know, learn skills or when we do things, you know, or think in certain ways, it's finding out like, how did I learn that or in what ways or through who or through what books? And again, right, is it, um, it from an interdisciplinary approach or is it a narrow, where, where does everything that we do come from? And I agree with you. It's really, really interesting. So I already look forward to hearing more about that and in your experience, it will be in the book. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so we're all going to look forward to the book. <laughs> and so, when is the book coming out? You oh, I'm, I'm not going to tell people anymore because I've been telling people, and, and it, it, it eventually becomes a lie. <laughs> okay, we'll hold you to that, and then we very much look forward to the book. Thank you so much, Jess, for coming onto the podcast. Very Can't happy wait, to be here. You know, to have you uh, back another time, and uh, and of course the webinar on the practical animal welfare science uh, platform very soon. Thanks again, Jess. You're welcome.